without help. All right. Thanks. So as she said, I, I recently relocated here from, from Utah, and I work at Badgeville, which is um, it's, it's a gamification company in Redwood City. If you've never heard of gamification, what it is is, is taking game mechanics, things that you, principles from like video games where you have levels and rewards and points, and trying to apply those into work contexts to try to kind of motivate and incentivize people. So um, that's, that's what Badgeville is all about. But uh, when I moved here, <clears throat> I totally sold my car because I saw this huge traffic and, and I, I take a bike and ride the Caltrain and between the two I get to work. But today I drove because I came all the way up here and I was reminded at like the, inc the insane traffic. I don't really know how you guys like uh, get through the traffic every day, but if you, if you have to commute like an hour and a half, two hours a day, I, I uh, take my hat off to you. Actually, um, if you do commute a long time, maybe you listen to podcasts or audiobooks. I, I, uh, I gave a similar presentation a while ago, or last month actually, to my own chapter down in Silicon Valley and recorded it. And some of you have already listened to it. So if, uh, if, you've, if you've heard some of these same ideas, I'll try to make this one unique. And uh, I'm also recording this, by the way. I just like to record things. Um, so if you, if you, you know, make a really vocal comment that you want me to censor, just let me know. Actually, <laughs> anyway. Um, <clears throat> okay, why can't users find answers and help? I want to start off with a story. So a few years ago, I was documenting some application, uh, some meeting management tool, and I was really trying to figure out the best way to organize the information. I was, uh, I was convinced that the solution to really um, making users happy, to helping them find things, was to figure out the right organization to all the content. Uh, have you ever um, listened to this podcast? I think it's called, um, oh, I can't remember. It's like by the NPR guys. Um, and they were talking about Dmitry Mendeleev, who's uh, you know, the, the founder of the periodic table, the guy who, who came up with the right arrangement of the periodic table. And they said that when he was figuring it out, he had all the periodic elements written on little note cards and kind of like a stack of face cards. And he would flip them around as he was riding trains through Russia. And I guess back at that time, he had a lot, of, a lot of time to just kind of ride trains and think, and he'd keep putting these periodic elements in different arrangements and orders and trying to come up with like, what was the structure that was the right one? And, and finally, almost in like an epiphany, a, a dreamlike moment, it, it snapped in his mind and he figured it out these repeating elements and, and it all came together and made sense and you know there, was, there were blank spaces where elements would later be discovered that, that fit there and so forth. And I thought, you know, help is kind of like that. If I could just figure out what that exact arrangement, that structure that naturally uh, reflects the actual thing I'm documenting, then users will know how to find the material. But, uh, so, so, I set, so I set myself a task, I said, look, I will write a hundred posts on the topic of organizing content on my blog and I'll, I'll dig so deeply into this topic that I will find the answer and I'll come up with a solution and users will be able to find exactly what they're looking for and it will be a great day. And so I, I flew to some conferences 
or, or somebody flew me to a conference, and I was really into faceted navigation and faceted search, which um, is a, <clears throat> a really cool principle. Um, faceted search or faceted navigation allows you to kind of separate out different elements or facets and then uh, rearrange things dynamically of all those uh, items that kind of meet that facet. You've seen it a million times on Amazon. You can browse by DVD, actually on Google. You can browse by recipes or something or patents or images or whatever. You can turn, you can turn whatever content it is on that, that facet. Well, and I was looking at a lot of other things too, but after this, this uh, conference, this was in Manchester, I was, I was talking about these different organization, organizational strategies and I kind of had this lingering feeling afterwards that I was missing something, that, that it wasn't really, faceted navigation and search wasn't really gonna solve it. it, it really hadn't. What was really the problem with content and why people can't find what they're looking for, I think is the content itself, There's something in the content itself that is, that is problematic. If you, uh, this is the lower left little timeline there. <clears throat> if you were to draw a timeline about kind of the evolution of health, what would it look like? If you start back in 1960, would users say, oh, help is terrible. And then as you progress through the ages into 1970, help begins to take an upward climb into, into uh, its quality. You know, help is okay. And then help is decent. Help is, help is useful. Help is good. Help, help rocks. You know, I love help. You think after, <laughs> after 60 years or, or 70 years, however long TechCom has been in existence, um, why don't we see this progression towards better and better help material that is, that is reflected in the user experience, where users say, oh, you're a technical writer? Oh, I love you guys. You know, you're like my best friend. <laughs> you know, thank you for, for doing that. Instead, the usual reaction is, Oh, oh, you're one of those guys. Oh, I hate that manuals, you know, I hate, hate help material. At least that's the response I often get, right? It's like, help is never this, this beautiful thing that we're creating that everybody sort of recognizes. So why is it? Why is it that it doesn't seem like rocket science? This is not, not building an artificial intelligence robot, right? This is something that, that seems relatively straightforward. We're just creating instructions. So why is it that we can't perfect it? Because the content is getting exponentially <laughs> more complicated. <clears throat> so back in, but we're also getting to be more and more sophisticated, right? It's like the help is getting, or the content's more difficult, but we're also becoming more digitally savvy and more used to these complicated concepts. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so in my experience, a lot of the focus in TechCom is on publishing, it's on building more efficient systems. And it's totally relevant and worthwhile, right? Being able to, to publish um, to 30 different devices, whatever, uh, to have something single sourced. But I think in all of that discussion, what we sometimes forget is the content. How do we create great help content? And that's what I wanna focus on today. What are the key things that constitute really awesome help? So I did a survey on my blog. I know you can't read this. I'm not expecting you to read it. I did a survey. I came up with kind of 20 reasons, more or less, uh, of, of why help kind of might suck, right? And about 200 people responded. Now, 
this is by no means any kind of official academic survey. Somebody emailed me and said, you know, who are the respondents? And I was like, well, they're people who read my blog, so they're other tech writers, and they're not actual users. I didn't go door to door and anything like that, right? So it's an informal survey, but after 200 responses, some trends start to emerge. And these are the seven trends uh, of, of why people cannot find what they're looking for in the help. Um, and we're going to go through each of these, but let me just, this is an overview, so I'll just kind of read through these, and then we're going to dive into each of them. 52% of the people said the help doesn't provide concrete examples that make the content understandable. Another 52% said the answer is buried in a long page, but the user only spends two minutes max scanning the page. 50% of the people said the answer isn't in the help because the help only sticks with obvious information. Another 50% said the user searches for the answer, but the help's poor SEO, search engine optimization, prevents the answer from surfacing. 44% said the answer is an isolated task, but the user needs a more connected beginning to end workflow. 43% said the help uses terms unfamiliar to the user, such as gizmo instead of widget. And finally, 36% said the help has been fragmented and dispersed over many small topics, so the help is a maze. Now, I told you I work at a gamification. Oh, yes. Was that based on meta multiple choice questions, or did people freehand fill in the blanks? It was multiple checkboxes that they could select. So I said, pick, I don't know, five or more of what you think are the top reasons out of these 20 that you think are, are the cause for help's poor quality. Uh, people left other comments in the, or they left um, comments that indicated other types of reasons. And, and you know, people, uh, they added some great reasons that I didn't even put up there. So, like I said, informal survey, but. Where, where did the 20 come from? What 20? What do you mean? Oh, the 20 number? Um, no, the original 20 comments. They, the, the original 20 options? Uh, just out of my own head, you know. So. <clears throat> like I said, informal, but I think that uh, you know, over time, as you get more and more people responding, some interesting trends emerge. And I think these seven topics that we're going to focus on really cut into the heart of why help is good or bad. Um, and, and there could be a lot more. Who knows what's conclusive, what's not. But remember, I said I worked for a gamification company. So. Uh, it makes sense that I would try to apply gamification to, to a presentation. And so what we have here is a game that you can play. Would you do me a favor, Alice? Would you just like pass one of these out to everybody? So here's how you play the game. And this is why this presentation, even though I, I've given it somewhere else, is going to be unique. I want you to try to advance your little player up to the top level by coming up with solutions to each of these problems. And we're going to go through it level by level, so you don't just try to do it all at once, but one level at a time. And uh, if you provide a solution for a level, you can kind of give yourself 10 points. And then after you're done, if you want to post your solution on Twitter with TechCom Solutions as a hashtag, two hashtags, 
uh, you can give yourself 15 points. And if you actually get a lot of retweets and the most, you can, you can win the game. So, you know, it's just a fun little technique to try to keep you engaged. And I think, um, I think it will work. All right. So this is uh, the handout that you're getting. And you can write your solution in the solution box. Who needs a pen? I know some people don't have pens. Tell me if you don't, and I've got one for you. OK, well, if you, if, you, if you do need one, just let me know. Any questions before we jump into the first level? It's so much more fun this way. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you been in a presentation where you're just lectured at for an hour, right? This is your chance to, to educate me and everybody else on how to overcome the most important, concept, important obstacles and help. So let's start with level one. The 36% of the people who said the help is, has been fragmented and dispersed over many small topics, so the help is a maze. One of my favorite bloggers is Mark Baker, and he blogs at every page is page one. And he has a metaphor for this syndrome. He calls it a Franken book, which is like a Frankenstein book. And basically he says you've got somebody who's written a PDF, a long PDF, and it's it's time for them to put it online. So they say, hmm, why don't I burst it apart at the, the heading two tags or something? And then all of a sudden, this long book that really made sense together is, is chunked out in ways where the user can't tell where the topic really begins or ends because they're just kind of micro topics. And so the user is kind of bouncing around from one topic to the next, trying to get the complete information he or she needs but it really seems like every topic starts at page 297 and there is no like start to a, to a topic. So this sort of information, fra information fragmentation is something that uh, uh, I've experienced a lot when I'm poking around in help. Um, how do you solve it? How do you overcome this? I mean, you've been taught right in topics, you know, discrete units, especially if you're into data, right? You've got like the atomic unit. How do you, uh, how do you overcome this little isolated information problem. So go ahead and, yes, Nikki, right? Yes. Okay. Hmm, good point. Um, no, not really, but, but so you're saying with context-sensitive help, you want it really small, right? Is that what you're, you're getting at? Well, the whole thing about, when I think of help, I think of context-sensitive help. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I had in my mind. I didn't have in my mind context-sensitive help with this with this maze okay. problem. Okay. It was more like a like a big online help file, really. Is that, is, that, is that, would you propose context-sensitive help as the solution to, to information fragmentation? Or are you thinking about it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, my solution would yes. be to uh, ignore the problem and sell them expert training courses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ignore the problem, sell extra training. I actually had a 
faced a, a thing where we had to do context-sensitive help, and it turned out that the contexts of the users could not be detected because when you deal with thin clients that are on the web, you can't collect that information. Hmm. So let's sell them training courses. All right, that that's a totally totally a, you know a, a solution that many companies do. Yes. Yeah. The first said tech solutions and your rules on sorry. So what are, what are sorry, it's uh, it's it's game. My my bad. Either one. So it's tech Yeah. Sorry about that. Is it? What do I have on the worksheet? You got tech game. Okay. Use that. You are perceptive. You're the first person to point that out. <laughs> All right. Anybody else have? Uh, and by the way. After you give your solutions, I will present what I think uh, is how I've handled or tried to handle these, these conundrums. Yes? So one possible way to find out how these things should be lumped together, grouped together, would be to use something like collaborative filtering and find out, okay, so how are people going to be using it? Kind of like the way Amazon, if you like this book, you might like these other books that are people bought. To find what topics hmm. are going to from a particular small atomic topic. Hmm. So you're proposing kind of like a dynamic filtering of the content based on one topic and the user's profile or, or their history. Ah, that's cool. That, that's, um, that would be, I would love to work in a place where we could implement that kind of like intelligent help. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a cool solution. Thanks. Anybody else? Okay, I'll give you my well, real one now that I've <laughs> So you're saying give some kind of context at the at the start that tells people why they would be there, where they're going. Great, great. All right, uh, you guys have plenty of time to share other comments as we go. I'll just let's move on and uh, hold on. Wait, one more. Yes, you had your hand up, right? Okay. Okay, kind of like a. Yeah. You got, I think that technique is called progressive disclosure, where you give a little bit of information and then let people drill into more information, kind of. Or link into it. Like a drill up almost. Okay. Now most people, most people kind of try to do that with the table of contents, right? They have like this immense table of contents. It's got a ton of options that expand. You've got folders and folders and folders and folders and things like that. Um, but uh, I've never re really been a fan of like the big TOC. If you look at most websites, you know they don't they don't really have users navigate through this seven layer table of contents. It's. And you understand that that's not what I'm proposing. Oh. Sorry, you, you're. So I was kind of. Uh, you're, you're saying uh, you want to have like a link at the top that points to a larger parent topic, right? Well, a more comprehensive topic. Okay. 
kind of like the context so thing. If the complaint is that they're little bitty pieces and I just don't see how they go together, just give the explanation the way you would. You know, short, but an explanation of the overall thing. Hmm. Yeah. So it really depends on what you mean by fragmented. Yeah. I'm thinking it means that it has no context to it. So it's just one piece of thing and I don't know where it fits with anything. Yeah. I like that. So uh, it seems like the, tr the trend, at least in a couple answers, is, is give a way to provide more context to the user who's, who's focused and spotlighted on this little topic. Um, so I, I, I have just a couple of uh, ideas, too. Um, I think there's a trend towards, towards longer pages of help, more complete sets of information. Um, Actually, Ellis Pratt posted something about this a few weeks ago, and I was excited to see it because uh, he, he often writes about trends. But if you look at sites like Wikipedia, they, they don't have little tiny pages. Sometimes oh, their pages are immense with 40 or 50 references at the bottom. Now, how is it that people find all that information? Well, there's certain advantages to a longer page. First of all, you don't have to update 10 little pages in different places. Right, so you've got the information in one space. But also, it follows kind of this thing called, uh, I don't know what it's really called, but shopping theory. If you walk into a grocery store and you want to buy bread and milk, where is it? At the back. And why? Why is it uh, the essential items most commonly purchased are always in the back? Why? They want you to go to the store to find the pastor. And, and they found the opposite ends because they want you to find the bread over here and then you've got to go over here and find the pastor. So the user comes into the <laughs> so, so yeah, they, they meander through the store, they pick up other items they didn't even intend to. And I think when you've got the information together like that, the user comes in, maybe the user had a specific question, and I think the user can learn what he or she didn't know uh, he or she wanted, right? You learn kind of what you don't even know you don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, so the other thing with long pages is to fil facilitate scanning, right? To enable people to, to jump down, right? If, if somebody, of course, you don't want to force somebody to read this encyclopedia when they don't, right? But um, having the information together could lead towards more discovery experiences, all, all I'm saying. I'll get into uh, subheadings a little bit more later. Yeah. Wikipedia is an encyclopedia. It's trying to tell you about something, whereas a help system is a, is a place where you want to get an answer to a specific question that you have at that moment, and you just want to get to the answer. Well, okay, so you say a help system is where you want to get a specific answer at that moment. But what, how, how does that work for somebody who's, who's new to a system and who doesn't even, who's starting from ground zero and they want to like learn how the whole system, or how they want to like learn Illustrator, for example, or they want to learn uh, some other complicated program, and they don't—they're not an advanced user, is well, what I'm they saying. They want to go to the help system to get an organized presentation of the product. They want to get that some through some other medium, like a third-party book. So the help fails the user who's the beginning user, and mostly serves an advanced user's purpose. It doesn't fail the beginning user, but it doesn't serve. Some additional needs of that user. 
Okay. Anybody else have a comment they want to throw in? Yeah. Yeah. What is, what is the system that, that your help is supporting? So obviously your module, uh, uh, you know, programming language is different than so software. Just to summarize, so you're saying that, that in some, some help systems, like for Python, you've got pages that allow the user to kind of get a lot of information through, uh, through one kind of view, is that or, right. or one? Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, th I think this is actually one of the most controversial topics, like trying to determine how long a topic should be, right? And, and some people, some people are like, a topic should just answer the user's question. Well, a user could have a really broad question, like, uh, what was Chaucer's influence on the Renaissance, right? Or a really specific question: When did Chaucer die? It's a bad example. It's not tech, right? But you can see how the question kind of fails. Um, and if you, you stick like a word count, oh, it should be 800 words. Well, that doesn't mean anything. But uh, other people would say it should, it should like help the user meet their goal, whatever that is. But the goals could vary so widely. You could have a very specific question, like Richard said, or you could have a broad question, like you know, how do I, how do I build, a, build a, a, a widget or something? <clears throat> so anyway, this is a perpetually difficult question. Another technique some people use um, are collapsible sections. They'll, they'll try to collapse them. And this is uh, more of the progressive disclosure technique where you give a little information and let people expand more and so forth. Um, let's go on to the next one. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's what I want. So, I mean, when I'm thinking about what I'm going to be writing or you know, what to do, that's kind of the goal as far as I'm concerned. So you're saying you want a f like a virtual friend to give you the answer as you as you need it. If it's how knowledgeable enough and can understand who you're talking to, yeah. So how do, how does that work when you try to determine like how you should chunk information, how you should like group information? Does that mean you would you would put a lot of it together, or you'd have more? Of a dynamic organization, like you mentioned earlier, or how, do, how does that translate? Look at Siri, right? Yeah. On the iPhone, I mean, it's starting to do some of those things. So it, Siri got me here tonight. Siri got me here tonight. So <laughs> Siri navigated me here tonight. So and no. You didn't need to be educated on the geography of the Bay Area. You didn't want to like learn everything that there is to know about GPS. It's just like, how do I get to here, and I need to be here yeah. by this time. And that's yeah. the, the thing to me about a lot of users is even users who are very inexpert, they are under the gun to do something they don't know how to do. Yeah. They don't have time to be educated and to be broad and to think 
from their right brain. So they just need that answer, and even though it would be better for them to be educated, they're just not, they just can't cope with all that. It seems like, okay, so th this seems to lead into this problem of, of, of users. A couple of you have now said advanced users have very targeted, specific questions they want answers to. But when you're a new user and you don't have that information, how you don't really have a specific targeted answer or question that you're trying to, to, yeah, to get. So okay, sometimes you do. So, okay, sometimes you do. <laughs> what would what would be a good example of this? Well, I think what you're talking about now is when you don't really know what the features are of something. What it, yeah. So in that case, you don't know the answer, the question they ask because you don't even know it can do something for you. Like if you work with a new program, well, mm -hmm. I didn't know it could do footnotes, you know, or something like that. So you're not going to ask that question how to do a footnote. Here's another, here's another example. Um, right now I have to document some, some JavaScript uh, visualizations that, that programmers have made. And I'm looking through the code, and I'm like, this is beyond me. Right? I can do simple JavaScript. This is made by somebody who's a mid-level senior JavaScript developer. It's got all kinds of things that I don't even understand. And I could go through each one and say, you know, what is, what is this method? What is this method? What is this? And I could try to piece it together. But what I also want is like somebody to give me a full story, like a more complete picture. And I'm not sure I could, like if you're writing the help, how do you, how do you, uh, do, do you create a million little different topics to answer tiny questions like this and end up with like thousands of topics because you, you hope that the user is gonna search and land right at that one or that one or this one or that one. Or do you well, bring them all together? Well, the information architecture approach to this, that, as I understand it, is that you start with user tasks, things that yeah. users are going to do, and then you break them down into parts and look at which ones overlap or, or could be used by more than one task and so forth, and you build your little hierarchy until you get to the leaves at the bottom that are, are not subdivided in any way, and you make those into topics. Mm -hmm. And then you provide ways of navigating through series of topics to get to a different user tasks accomplished. Mm. So you're saying that you organize the help by these tasks, and then at the bottom, they develop into topics? I got a little lost in yeah, the topic say, part. Oh, all right, so uh, here are the main tasks you have to do with your accounting system. Well, I have to create a user mm -hmm. account. I have to blah, blah, blah. And then each of those things probably has subtasks and uh, or parts that you might also do include in some other task. Mm -hmm. And so try to find a way to get those little bits that are in several different tasks but are the same for each you try to get those to be their own topics and uh, down at the the bottom of this uh, tree of uh, uh, going from uh, going from user tasks down to really user sub sub tasks that are a topic okay all right, uh, we're gonna we're gonna beat this topic to death, but there's there's six more levels. There's six more levels. So let's just kind of move on a little bit. Um, hopefully, hopefully we've spurred some thought. This is this is why I think this is such an interesting topic because it all these topics hit at the core of like help. Um, can okay, go for it. Saying, I don't know if anybody here is agreeing with me on that point, but 
Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm saying is, is that like the information should be a more complete whole um, rather than having lots of different pieces. I, I like to put them in one page that's easy to scan and navigate. Um, that way, like if a user searches, they're not trying to guess from a lot of different topics. It puts less pressure on precision terminology in searches. But uh, there's lots of people who, who, who disagree with that, actually. Um, yeah. Well, about 15 years ago, and, and this, this division emerged that you, that you want to recognize some information as conceptual, some as procedural, and some as reference. And this has kind of gotten finally uh, codified into data. But um, so when we're talking about this fragmented health, I think we're talking mostly about the procedural part of it. Could, it could be either. I, I was in a, a vendor's help file where, where the conceptual topics were one sentence, two sentences long. I mean, it, anyway, but yeah, that's a great observation, though, that there's been this kind of division of information into these different sort of groups. So you have these tasks that are, aren't connected to any kind of concept, and so people are, they land on them, and they're like, well, I don't really know when I'm going to do this. And so there has to be more of an integration, whether that's through a link or some other means. You know, that's, that's kind of the challenge. All right, let's go on to level two. So I want you to, don't say this out loud, I want you to write on your piece of paper what this is. Okay, this is this is this is what it this is a sort of function, right? It it does this. What is what do you call this thing? Give you a second, figure it out. No, 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 you don't say it out, write it down. <laughs> Jumping into the next controversial area. Somebody said they wanted controversy, right? Trying to bring it. Okay, so let's just go around. Uh, tell me, I'll just shout out all your different names. Actually, anybody. Uh, shout out. Drink facilitator? Insulator? Beer koozie? Can jacket? Can condom. Neoprene can sleeve. Anybody else? Different ones? Cup holder, cup wrap. <laughs> so th this is probably a more uh, difficult example. It, it illustrates the point, right, that there's lots of different terms that people have for the same thing. So how is it when you're writing help that you've picked the right term, especially if your application might use a term that's a little more official and stiff? more f formal than maybe a user's term. So go ahead and write down your solution to this problem. How do you make it so that your terms match? Because this is really where, where the search uh, is made or broken, right? If, if a user is searching for koozie, and they keep searching for koozie, and your documentation's got neoprene insulator, they're never going to find it. <clears throat> no, I, I think in Australia they call it koozie. I think, right? I actually don't know for sure, but... That's how they pronounce cozy. Cozy, cozy. Actually, I read about this in a, in a book by an Australian, Donna Spencer. She said she, she, she uses this, and she called it a koozie, so that's where I got it. 
But Donna Spencer's got a great book on information architecture for you. Okay, Bonnie. Isn't it just a matter of including an AKA? Like also known, known as? as? Okay. Yes, so it is, so it is. And okay. I, I mean, of course, there are, there's the potential that there's like 10 different names for it. But in that case, you could do the research, pick the three most popular, and it's like you're most likely to hit the ones that users are going to use. Okay, so yeah, yeah, great. Great idea. So you're just putting like synonyms within it that describe, or, or places where you say this is also known as this term and so and forth. Okay. Uh, you had your hand up first. Um, no. All right, Nikki. Yeah. You could, you could, sure. I mean, it depends what system you're using, but so you're saying in an ideal system, you've got a, a topic that's got some metadata that lists alternative terms for that topic. Yeah, a glossary, okay. Wikipedia style links on the, on the pop. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. So little mouse over tips or something yeah. that, okay. Bonnie, yeah. One problem I can see with that is that like you, or I guess not necessarily with that with that example, but that you might have some Yeah, so, so the writer may not even realize it. So here's a great example. I was uh, trying to document this instructions for a tool called DataSift that will look through Twitter's vast uh, database of tweets and match certain keywords. You know, so if you tweet, I love Badgeville, and I want to give you a special award, reward for tweeting and promoting a company or brand, this, this product will like match it and, and let you kind of process that match. And I looked for a long time trying to figure out what, what are the rules? How does it, does it, does it do, how does it handle punctuation and, and capitalization and, and word order and things like that? Turns out the right term is tokenization, which may be something that speaks really clearly to developers, but it didn't mean anything to me. Any compiler writer knows what that term is. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, and, and also this other term, CSDL engine, right? It's a meaningless kind of buzzword for the company, I bet. But it's their branded thing. So um, I'm sure you've been in some context where, where the official term is, is some crazy thing. Once I documented a tool, they had a big button called Omnibus. And I, I was like, are we using that term correctly? And it had five different meanings, and none of them were how we were using it. And I, I tried to fight the battle, you know, let's fix the interface. Let's make it clear internally. Of course, I lost. Um, but, <laughs> but choosing familiar terms is this perpetual battle. And, and this fallback, right, if you, if you can tie it together on the back end, somehow making it so that searches for one word pull in another topic, that's great. But I think Bonnie's recommendation is, is also spot on, trying to include little, little bits here and there that teach the user the different terms. And this is something that Peter Morville says about browsing and searching. He says, 
users learn through a combination of browsing and searching. You search for a term. Let's say you're searching for get widget for RSS or something. You're trying to do, let's say you've got a WordPress blog. You want to bring in, you want to bring in my latest posts as an RSS feed on your sidebar, right? <laughs> joking. <laughs> so you, you land on some topics that I'll use this term called module. And you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I need a module. Maybe this is a Drupal site. And you're like, oh. And, and so you, you then recast your search in new terms download feed module. And you find a whole section on data feed modules, and you're like, oh, yeah, I need a data feed, because whatever, let's say you're doing. So you type in options to set up data feed modules. So you're kind of learning as you're searching. <clears throat> Finally, you, you land on the right topic, you know, configuring data feed modules with RSS. The point is there's, there's no easy solution to trying to, in trying to get the right term. You're either going to alienate the people who know the real term, or you're going to alienate people who know the familiar colloquial term. But you can teach users, within your help, uh, the right terms if you, if you guide them. Rebecca. Um, well, can you teach your help system based on how well the users are finding their stuff? You know, when I use the Adobe help, it always says, well, did you, did you find what you were looking for? Was this topic effective? And you can say yes, no. And if you say no, you get a little box and you can say what you were looking for. And can you actually make your help system learn so that it's more efficient without you having to like fuss with it all the time? So you want the help system actually learn the terminology as it goes. Yeah, I want the you help know, system to be artificially intelligent. Coming back to, to Siri, <laughs> right, that you brought up earlier, I think uh, Siri's got some kind of new question she asks where she says, you know, I'm not familiar with that term. Can you, can you say it again or something? They're trying to build more AI into Siri, and I think it's awesome. Uh, great example, or great response. Let's it's go on. It's fantasy, but, you know. It's not a fantasy. Look at Watson. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know why they don't put Watson to work uh, in place of help, help systems. All right, let's go on to task number, level number three. Tasks are isolated from each other. This is kind of, uh, this, is, this has echoes from our former discussion. But, so that, here's the problem. Let's say you are, um, you're on your super duper fancy smartphone and you're trying to, like, you're, you're talking on the phone and somebody says, oh, hey, can you give me the number to your friend so-and-so? And you're like, oh, crap, I, I'm talking and I can't pick up my contacts. So you go into the, to the help later, you're like, well, I know I should be able to do this. And you find a topic for how to make a phone call and how to like, browse through your contacts, but not how to browse through your contacts while you're on the call. And, and this bleeds into all kinds of other, other sort of um, issues, right? Let's say, whoops, let's say with uh, Illustrator, you want to make this cool little flask. Well, you got to do the gradient tool, and you got to do the, the swatch tool. You got to do the stroke and the outline and the shape and the pen and so forth. You got to bring it all together. So, so how do you? But but help is usually these isolated tasks. Here's how you use the shape tool. Here's how you here's how you take a photo. Um, how do you uh, prevent task isolation? Go ahead and write down your answer. Or think it out, one of the two. And in, implicit in this question is the idea that the task is not really a user task, it's, it's a micro subtask at the bottom leaf of the tree. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've got all kinds of assumptions in there. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, maybe the task. So you're saying that the, the task shouldn't be so narrowly focused. It should like address a more real situation. Yeah, it might be that to get when you start learning about a task, it may take you to a series of subtopics, but but something ties them together at the user task level. Yeah. Mother, your mother task, right? Yeah. Like yeah. So a mother task might link out to a lot of different subtasks. Is that yeah. kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Or, Great. Or, okay. Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, oh, somebody who hasn't responded yet? Give them a chance. Okay. Nikki? Just saying better task analysis would kind of prevent this sort of solution. No, no, I'm just trying to summarize and paraphrase, especially because I'm recording this. Um, so, so yeah, well, what if, uh, you, you know, what if you do your best, like let's come back to our flask. You do your best in, best in the help, but there's no way you're going to anticipate that somebody wants to draw a flask. You can't have in your Illustrator help how to draw a flask, how to draw a cat, how to draw a dog, how to draw a tree. So how do you prevent... <laughs> Okay. So you got like a you you just used a new term instead of topic you you've used the term tutorial. So that, that is a very new term that no one here has ever heard before. <laughs> I don't often hear it, this term in in non like e-learning context, right? What this is because tech common and e-learning are like at war with one another it seems. No, I'm being I'm being sarcastic. Um so so yeah, I I think uh I think introducing the term tutorial would really um, change the approach that people make towards help. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I don't like having to watch a five-minute video when I can scan a page in 20 seconds. You know, I hear this so often because I, I, I love creating video tutorials. I do, this is like my second or actually I'm more passionate about that than, than this topic. And I always hear this response. People are always telling me. I, they're like, I'm a reader. I don't like sitting through a video. I have to sit there and wait and wait and wait to get to my answer. You know, it's probably the situation where you've got an advanced user where it's like, I want to know how do I adjust it so when I rescale my image, the stroke doesn't rescale. You know, don't make me watch a 12-minute video on the stroke tool. Please Sorry. 12-minute <laughs> video on anything. Your video should be short. You, well, they, people they, an they expert should. coach because if you have a coach that's sitting right near you, I'd say, hey, Richard, how do I change the stroke? And he would just say, you know, go here, and he would point to it, and then I would say, cool. And that's like 15 seconds. And I don't have to sit there for 12 minutes. So, and then so you have to replay it. So, uh, okay, I'm hearing conflicting things. At first, we were, we were embracing the word tutorial with kind of some love. And now we're, we're throwing it under the bus and kicking no. it. No, I, want so, <laughs> I want written tutorials. 
You want written so tutorials, another, okay. Another solution to this, which is okay. more in line with what you're talking about, which is like for each of these isolated, chunky subtasks, however small they are, you have a little beginning and a little end, and the little beginning is you might want to do this if you are blah, blah, blah. And the answer, the, the for example, has to be a universal example, and those are not that easy to come up with. You can only come up with them if you have better task analysis. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you might say, now that you've done X, you know, here are some related topics, and you know, here's where you might want to go next. Or if you're in an accounting system, you might have a couple of required things that you've got to do, and it's really good to put those down. Like, you, you know, you might want to, you know, you know, go in and do your time card now or whatever it is. You know, just put like the, the most common, obvious thing there. But the thing that I think why people don't put these in help is because the only way to get this kind of good context is to have a lot of experience with the system and to have a lot of context with people who are already using it. Yeah. You know, and uh, if you're trying to write a help system for a new piece of software, you can't ever get this, and so it's never going to be perfect. <coughs> you know, the the, the examples uh, is something I totally wanted to expand on because I think examples clarify, and, and this is actually a, in a, a little later step, so maybe we'll pause there and kind of jump into that in a minute. But um, I just wanted to come back to the video tutorial thing. Uh, there's, have you ever seen a, a site called lynda.com? Yes. Immensely popular, right? And when you've got software that has sophisticated interfaces where there's lots of visual details, video tutorials can be extremely helpful because a lot of times in, in written text, people don't see all the different, like, they don't see all the different details that maybe get skipped in, in the other kind of written things. Another approach is to, uh, to <clears throat> create a more narrative workflow topic. And this is, this is like a tutorial, but more of an overview where you paint the picture of how this feature is being used. So let's say that you've got <clears throat> this uh, meeting management tool or something. It's got all these different functions. You can create a meeting, you can add notes, you can add minutes, vote, and so forth. But you could write a, a sort of narrative workflow topic that says, you know, Mark is a secretary for this committee. He has a meeting coming up, so he creates a new meeting. And that, that uh, word, new meeting, links to a topic on how to create a new meeting. And adds it to the calendar. Mark gathers agenda items. Again, that like links out. And adds each item to the meeting. He estimates the time and also adds time for a guest visitor and so forth. So if you, if you write the story of how your product is being used, you can kind of avoid this task isolation and give users the big picture and, and guide them along a path on, on how to use it. That's what you would call a story or like uh, a case study. Yeah, yeah, and I think we often forget these kind of things. It's not like it's rocket science to write a, a story kind of topic, a narrative workflow. It's just that we get so immersed in the program that we forget the big picture because we already know it so well by the time we're documenting it. Yeah, yeah, but that, okay, you sorry, go. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So I, I, I guess I have a, I have a little. Uh, I don't like the term user story with the Agile because in, in all the contexts I've seen, the user stories are like one sentence. The user needs to be able to you know, print this from the screen. Whereas what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is like a larger picture. Maybe, maybe in a proper Agile environment, a user story plugs into like a larger meta narrative of, of the user ca user's kind of actions. But anyway, 
All right, let's go on to uh, next level. Help sticks with the obvious only. This is another great like example of of where it gets difficult, and this is this is probably one of the most challenging obstacles to overcome and help. Um, have you ever? Well, I'm sure you've, you've, you've experienced this, but you go into the help and your question isn't answered because the help is really obvious. I love TechSmith's help. I love their products, Snagit, Camtasia, but their help files are really minimal. They, they almost never answer my question. Uh, the forums do. They've got great forums, great help. They're totally, you, if you tweet about their product, somebody responds immediately. Um, but. Uh, but their help is really slim. It's partly because they translate it, right? And they're trying to keep it minimal. They're trying to make it accessible to, to users and so forth. But when I've got an encoding question about this and that and what rate and this isn't working, yeah, I'm not going to find anything. So, so they have a different meaning for the word help. So they have this little help file, but that's not their help system. Their help yeah. system is the forum and the yeah. tweets and the, uh, the people monitoring the social interactions. Good, good, good. Okay, so you're saying, like, as a user, you shouldn't confine help to just one aspect of, of what they're delivering. No, you should figure out how they actually deliver help and go there. Well, what it is is it's the voice of experience, not the voice of authority. You know, the voice of authority is the official help, official <coughs> documentation that comes. That's the voice of authority that mm -hmm. comes for the people that are paid by the company that builds the whatever it is. That's the voice of authority. Forums and uh, he was saying forums, you know, he tweets. Well, those are the voice of experience. These are people who spent the time learning the thing and are sharing their knowledge. So they are the ones that are. Well, it may well be that there are authoritative company employees monitoring these things and answering be. things. There may be, yeah. There may be a combination. Well, what? one of the things about relying on the voice of experience is that end users who don't work for the company are freer to talk about. This thing just doesn't work, and you have to do this workaround, and it sucks, but just do it. And the, the voice of authority, you know, I could never put that in a help file. <laughs> no matter how well, true it is, I cannot, you know, talk about the warts, but another third-party user can talk about it and get people over the hump, and, you know, I'm not on the hook. I, I, like, this, uh, I like this trend that you guys are talking about with voice of authority because it suggests that in order to write help that tackles all these advanced topics, you have to leverage multiple experts, different perspectives. If you just have one tech writer who's not even part of the business process environment writing in, in kind of one perspective, you know, the help is going to be one dimensional. But when you, when you expand it out, when you include others and trying to figure out how you, how you bring those other experts in um, is a challenge. But when you do that, I think, yeah, it, it, it totally helps go beyond the obvious. Um, it can, it, can, it can make you look, look really bad if your software isn't well designed because all your user forums will be full of angry posts and bitter responses. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to say I found several of these. So, you know, be, be wary. So, uh, well, you can't get jump into social media unless you're prepared to deal with that and, mm -hmm. and incorporate it and improve your product. Uh, you can't just have, have it over on the side as, as something mm -hmm. to promote your product. It has to be integrated into your whole process so that when you get feedback through social media, you actually change your internal company processes if they're broken. Part of the problem with kind of expanding into these different channels is that when you, when you talk about social media, a lot of times, like 
it's owned by the you know it, it's owned by marketing. The forums and the support channels are owned by the support group. You know, the documentation is owned by or I shouldn't say owned, but is is run by the documentation team. And the three kind of work in silos and, and so forth. And that that I think is is a well, you can't, terrible you can't problem. Be, you can't <laughs> succeed in using this whole social media idea unless you break those silos down and you align your internal business processes with the uh, with the feedback that you're getting uh, wherever it comes from yeah it, and it, and it's so much um, more difficult to try to you know in try to bring different departments together like that but but essential um, so I was at a content strategy applied conference the other week, last month or so, and there was a lady speaking on plain English, plain English and she, it was a great presentation, but afterwards I asked her, I said, I've got this really difficult problem. Um, I'm writing documentation for marketers and for developers, and it's the same stuff, but one is like the SDK part and the other is the conceptual part. So how do you write plain English um, that, that speaks to both. She said, you can't, you have to choose an audience. Well, that was a simple solution, but uh, I have one website. I'm not like splitting it out and like, oh, your audience A, your audience B, your audience C, because the audiences could evolve, different people need more information. But I think you can, you can kind of choose an audience at a, at a page level. You could have an advanced topic and you could have a beginning topic in your same help system. Um, and kind of straddle it that way, yeah. Well, but there are other ways to do that as well. So, for example, I've written some topics. Can you speak a little louder? Yeah, I so said there are there are other techniques you can use for this kind of thing as well. For example, um, I've written a few topics where I work where I use a flowchart to indicate a methodology to do something. And each flowchart, each bubble or whatever, each thing on the flowchart may also lead down to um, link or have an indicator to a section that goes into much more detail. So the advanced view. Cool. Yeah, I like the idea of the flowchart. It kind of um, seems similar to like this narrative workflow, like the overall big picture. So, hey, uh, how much more time do I have, uh, Joe? It's 8.19. Am I supposed to like, okay, I just want to make sure I don't drag people. Oh, I have 20 minutes? Oh, okay, great. Okay. Another, another technique for going beyond the obvious is to learn continually. Now, this, is, this, is, this topic fascinates me um, because it's so much easier to say than do. Right? I, I mentioned earlier, I have this challenge. I've got to document these JavaScript code samples that are beyond my ability. And I have put my nose in the book or the site with Safari learning JavaScript. I've watched tutorials, right? But you can only go so far. So how do you, how do you break through um, these learning barriers and move up? For example, uh, lady mentioned that they need a, a writer for Twitter who knows six different programming languages, who can learn a program, programming language in a, in a week. You know, somebody who looks at Hadoop and, and makes sense of it all and it pays extremely well because there's not a lot of those people out there, right? So how do you move into that space of this like 
uh, uber-intelligent programming-type writer. <laughs> get, a, get a whole degree, okay, education, go back to school. Yeah, but I've got four kids at home, I've got a career, I've got bills to pay, I don't have time to go back to school. Any, uh, sorry, this is, uh, <laughs> I guess this was my suggestion on how to learn continually, so I'm just kind of diving into this one, but I think there, there are certain techniques that have worked well for me in trying to learn things. One is, if you start from a relevant situation, things are much more interesting. So, for example, with JavaScript, if I start with a specific code sample and say, what is this INIT stuff, what, what is this, and begin there and kind of branch out, is a lot more relevant than starting in page one, which I, I have already gone through that sort of initial process, but start with a relevant problem work. Let's say you're trying to illustrate something, all right, rather than just, oh, I'm gonna learn Illustrator. No, um, learn how to illustrate some specific thing that you're trying to draw, or After Effects, I'm trying to learn After Effects. And I needed to show time, I needed to show like an hour passing because there was a, a certain configuration where you had to wait an hour. And I was like, wouldn't it be cool if a clock popped up on the screen and the hour passed around like that? Super simple to do, but it gave me a, a relevant starting point rather than just, oh, okay, let me start with the panel, uh, panel modification and I'll go down the left. You know, it's, it's too tedious that way. Another um, great way to try to learn continually is to chunk everything out into these 25-minute segments. Does anybody know what this method is called? Um, <clears throat> yeah. Pomodoro. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> so yeah, it sounds cool because it's in Italian. You've seen these tomato timers, a kitchen timer that you twist in half and it, and it starts ticking? Well, that's just a, a cute way of saying, look, chunk it in 25 minutes. When the bell rings, go take a break. You know, go, go watch some Hulu parody or something um, and then come back. Because if you pick up the C-sharp programming book and try to go through it, you know, when you get to page 30, if your brain's not numb, it probably will be soon. And, and that, that's a quick way to tire yourself out. Um, a third really cool tip is that Safari, which has almost every technical book, uh, um, a lot of, probably a lot of the books over there, uh, and costs $43 a month, is probably free through your library. I found this out last month. I'd been paying for a subscription, a personal subscription, and finally somebody said, did you try your library? Sure enough, there's like a portal through the library link. Um, it does not have videos though, which is what I really like. So I also subscribe to lynda.com, and both of these are incredible learning sites. So although technology is getting more and more difficult, there's also more and more accessible, learnable information about it. Yeah? If you're talking about JavaScript, you should check out Code I did, I did, and I love Code Academy. They've got hands-on stuff, right? You've got a programming interface right there. Problem is, it seems like it stays in the very basic realm. I can't ever like go beyond, but brilliant concept. Um, yeah. So if I have to solve a problem that I have no clue how to solve, uh, one thing I will do is if I, if I know three different experts in it, yeah. if I'm lucky enough to do that, I will go to each one individually and I'll pick their brains and I'll say, here's my problem, how would you solve it? And I'll usually get three different answers. Like, yeah. you know, like doing that class, there might be like 
several different ways to get that same special effect, but after you ask like three people, there will start to be an overlap and you'll start to get the overall picture. So if you have time to do that, and hmm. if you're like way over your head, it's, it's like one way to get out of the drowning. You know, I, I think that's an excellent sort of strategy to try to ask other people. I, I'm terrible at not doing that though. Like at my work, I feel as if sometimes I want to prove myself by figuring it out, right? But then I go over to the engineer, one of the engineers is behind it, and I'm like, okay, I can't get this to work. And he told, he actually loves already, to explain it. Oh, I know. But I found that engineers love to kind of um, show you how smart they are. And they go way beyond what, what I wanted to know, right? And, and, and it's great, it builds bridges. Of course, you don't want to do that like every 10 minutes, but more often than, than once a quarter. All right, uh, level five, you know what? In the interest of time, I'm gonna skip this level. Sorry. You want? All right, all right, all right, back up, back up. Poor SEO hides the answer. The reason I was going to skip this is because um, it's, it's, it, uh, well, anyway. Yes. So you do site-specific searches on Google to kind of limit the results to the site you're looking for? Right, right, right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, so with Google, how can you compete against a search engine company that is like the mega company with billions of dollars behind it, right? And they're constantly refining things. <clears throat> yeah, you can, exactly, integrate it, totally. I 100% support that. Here's the reason I was gonna skip this, is because <laughs> my, my recommendation always, I feel like people are gonna throw eggs at me. Um, I think that if you want to, optimize for the web. You should publish on a web platform, something that lives and breathes web-like um, architecture. Some, some sites, some common sites might be MediaWiki, for example, is, a, is what uh, Wikipedia is based on. It's super search engine optimized. The whole structure is set up well. If you notice, like every time you search for something, Wikipedia is on the top top few, few results because partly their platform is, is awesome. It's really well optimized. Other big platforms might be Drupal, Joomla, WordPress, lots of other web CMSs that, I, that I'm sure you're using. <clears throat> Too often I think tech writers um, 
end up kind of trapping their, their content in tools that maybe use frames where, where like the content isn't, isn't there and so the searches can't find it. Or, or they use a tool that, that shifts around the page URLs constantly so that like once things get indexed in Google, they, they lose their index with each new publication or, or regenerated kind of publishing of the content. So I kind of think, look, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to play the web game, use a web platform. You won't have to spend so much time trying to search engine, search engine optimize your content. It's a lot easier to just say that because I know that uh, a lot of people are, you're saddled with whatever system you've got. You can't just like up and change a system and there's lots of politics behind it, right? But I think that uh, that's one solution. Another, as you said, is to just kind of be aware of Google. The, the um, Google Appliance or whatever it is where you can, what's it called, the, where you can embed Google on your own page and just have it search your site um, is a great way to, to uh, be aware of how Google is delivering your content. I, I have this on my blog and I do this a lot with other, other sort of sites. Google gives you a different view than your, your built-in search. And just being aware of that view helps you, helps you see your content in a new light. So thanks for chiming in and, and, and helping us address that one. We've only got 10 minutes left and I, I wanna get to these last two because I think they're, they're really key, all right? Not enough examples. The help sucks because, or sorry, the help doesn't provide concrete examples that make the concepts understandable. So take a second, try to write down what, and I know this one is like a no-brainer, right? But we're gonna get into some, some more depth with this. <clears throat> Any solutions there with the examples? Why do you think this surfaced as, the, as such a top one? This is, there's a couple that are tied at 52%, but there's none more. I had no idea that people would latch on to this one more than any other, really. It's for the last 10 years, people, or more that I can remember, people have been latching on to that. Yeah, so you're saying this is, this is nothing new. This is a perpetual problem because the people who are writing the documentation are not qualified to pr produce the examples. Ah. The issue is that people may have they're not qualified, qualified to produce right. the examples either. Yeah, right. Because they're not the end user. Right. Depending on your product. The people that are qualified to give you the examples are the people that are using your product. Hmm. Right. So if they don't have time to Oh no, they're happy to. They're happy to give give you all the examples if you just ask. Yeah. If you if you provide a forum where they can contribute them, yes. they'll contribute them. I also feel like what's defined as qualified is just different for different users and so if you put in a specific example, it could make sense to certain group of people, but it might also not answer the question that other another group of people are looking for. Mm. And so even with the example, it kind of like with the uh, with the specific words or the jargon or whatever, it, it also caters to a very specific group that you're imagining in your head, mm. which might not be broad enough. Great, great responses. And, and such a, such a, back to Richard's, um, you know, it's a bold claim, right? Just, <laughs> it like cuts us all because I, I know there's a lot of truth to that. Um, even gamification, which, which sounds like, oh, you know, it's totally easy to implement, but there's all kinds of factors to consider. Extrinsic motivators, intrinsic motivators. You do this technique, that technique. What works in this situation? How does all this like theory fit with the how-to of the application? You know, we, we, 
leaves the design, uh, the strategy to, to like a specialized group who look at the metrics, who like work with different industries, you know, they know which buttons to push, you know, so it's, it is a problem. Um, but when you do give an example, it, it usually infuses your help with some kind of strategic insight. So even if you don't go and, and, and get the, the good, good stuff from the people who know, um, or, or if you do get little crumbs and so forth, uh, it can be really helpful. This is, this is a WordPress new post page, right? You go into WordPress, you want to write a new blog entry. You've got this little feature on the right that allows you to timestamp things. So you can set your post to publish um, 9 a.m. or something when you think it might be a time. So if, you, if you're documenting this and you say, okay, let me give an example. Uh, why you might want to use this feature. Um, it can help bring your documentation to life. If you say, look, if you, if you timestamp your post so that it's set to publish at 11 a.m., you'll get twice, usually people get a lot more readership than if they set it to post at 1 a.m. when they finish it, right? And so, so this sort of examples are a way to sneak in a business strategy. And it forces you to kind of be strategic about it. By the way, that's true, like people, it's crazy. This this drives me insane. Um, the whole through Thursday. <laughs> the 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 uh, lifespan of a blog post has like shrunk dramatically. It used to be that you could publish a post and you get comments on it all week, and and it gets shorter and shorter. So that now uh, after two days, the blog post is essentially like disappears. You know, it only appears when people search for it, and usually the people searching. Techcom are trying to like get a job. They're trying to break in the industry, so it's crazy. And tweets, Twitter is the same way, right? A tweet lives um, like maybe an hour or two after it's posted, unless it goes viral. Anyway, that was an aside. Code examples are another huge sort of difficulty, and I've been mentioning this earlier. But uh, you know, coming up with code examples is is also um, really difficult. There's a lot of APIs out there, right? These, these application programming interfaces that allow, that allow you to leverage another service with your own product and so forth. And they have documentation that explains how oh, you can use this and that method, this and that, this is what the different endpoints do and these are the resources that it returned. But how many APIs actually walk through like example integrations or really give you the nuts and bolts of how you integrate it with your product? I think that's like a level that you don't often see. Can I make a quick yes. note here? A lot of the stuff I've documented over the years has been 1.0 software and they have no clue how people are gonna use it. <clears throat> it's very, very hard to come up with good use cases because it's just an idea in someone's head and nobody's really thought it out. Well, it's been very frustrating. When we, we, uh, we recently came out with this new API um, and the developers, they were convinced that all these mid-level JavaScript developers would get a hold of it and they'd be able to do whatever they wanted with it. They'd be able to you know, grab this method here and this information and they'd pull it together and, and create all kinds of beautiful custom visuals. Yeah, and when we launched it, like, we kept waiting for that to happen. Where is this, where's this like, really cool customization that somebody's doing? And, and it kind of trickles in really slowly but eventually we realized, you know what? People need example widgets, essentially. They need example visualizations. So we had a guy code some, and, and uh, 
it's going to show like how the API gets leveraged to pull different information and style it in an attractive way. So anyway, the examples part is huge. So uh, really consider that. All right, the last level. And we only have about three minutes left. So think about this one. The, the quest is, the answer is buried in a long page, but the user only spends two minutes max on each page scanning. And this echoes back to that first controversial point, right, where you all said, the user wants the exact thing. So how do you, how do you handle this one? Notice the little player is doing a backflip because he's almost up there. Yeah. Yeah. Visual cues. I'm so glad you you said that because I'm a hundred percent believer in this. Um, let me let me give an example. Uh, so I was I was documenting a bunch of different types of levels. Ah, have it right here. And I was like, you know what? I could describe each of these an ordered mission, a level mission, a random mission, and a progressive mission, but wouldn't it be cooler if I could like illustrate them? And so below, I'll ex I export these into the documentation and so forth, but the R stands for reward, and below each one there'll be a description, but uh, basically it doesn't take a lot to just try to illustrate an idea. And it makes such a difference in the readability. Um, for example, the random one, it has a random path. The level one has an infinite no end and so forth. And I think a lot of times with visual stuff, so many of us get bogged down with the idea that visuals have to be these really sophisticated like vector diagrams that are hard to make. But really, this is a circle and a line. The person is a, is a semicircle and, and an oval. You know, it's a square. If you draw any shape and write what it is underneath it, you can get, you can squeak by. And uh, coming up with like the strategy of how to visualize it, how to try to depict an idea is the hard part. You could always scribble off uh, your, your little drawing and hand it off to a graphic designer who can make it look pretty. Or you could just figure it out yourself how to, how to just do these simple sort of shapes in whatever graphics program you have. But it does make a lot of difference. Um, I've been, it's something I've been trying to do more. I, I feel like visual communication is really where it's at. Um, it's kind of a relaxation for after reading all those words. Yeah. But I was going to say something else ah. is that another way to break up a long page is how Wikipedia does it. They'll have like a list of topics at the top. And then even if I have to scan the whole damn page, at least I'll sort of have an idea of what's coming next. Yeah. Um, and then I can educate myself, but I'll also find the answer for my question. Yeah. Um, but I also like pictures just because it's like eye candy. You know, you're thinking so hard, where's the answer to my question? And then you get a picture, and I don't even care what it is. <laughs> I don't even care. It just makes me did, happy, and it'll keep me on the page like another five seconds. Did you, here's, here's kind of a related fact. Did you know that blog posts are more likely to be perceived as being credible if they include a picture? Yep. Um, I think the great secret of technical communication is, is combining words with pictures. It's so like basic. I, I read to my three-year-old at night, and she's fascinating because the storybooks all have pictures and, and very few words, right? 
But, but this, this uh, visual element, um, I know a lot of people are like, ah, just give me the words, I'll read through it. But the visual element gives balance, it makes it readable, understandable, and, and it takes a lot of the burden off you, right? If you have to uh, explain something really complicated, picture is going to make it easier. Um, Yeah. You get a lot, you know, a good picture is worth a thousand words and a bad picture is not, but if you can, I like flowcharts for that reason too. Yeah, the flowcharts, the workflows, those are all great. <laughs> and just a final one, subheadings. I know we're out of time, so I'll just gloss over this, but I think it's one of the most useful techniques in, in TechCom. It allows you to, to scan users to scan down the page between the subheadings, the, the pictures. You may have a long page, but if it's got this visual uh, stuff, lists, tables, it breaks it up. Finally, the game is over. I hope you had fun. If you're really brave, you're really brave, take a picture of your little paper and post it on Twitter. I, I would love to see it. <coughs> you post, great, even better, even better, even better. So I only have 25 Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a glossary is usually a big, long page, right? They should know that, but they don't, you know, they don't that much. Isn't that everyone's response? Are you, are you trying to find something in a giant page of text? You just, instead of knocking yourself out, seeing if you're going to pick it anyway, you control F? Yeah. Or you can also follow me on Twitter at Tom Johnson. And uh, don't phone me. I don't know why I put that up there, but you can send me an email. <laughs> and thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Oh, hey, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Tom. Awesome.